I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got another double feature for you. Later on, we'll be speaking with Mitch Robson of the University of Chicago's conservative student paper, The Chicago Thinker, about his recent confrontation with Liz Cheney at an IOP event where he grilled Miss Cheney about the Iraq War. But first, Cato Institute policy analyst Jordan Cohen joins us to discuss the problems with U.S. arms sales policy, with particular attention paid to the ways in which lack of oversight has led to weapons dispersion that could endanger the United States. All that and much more in the conversation to follow with Jordan Cohen on the 2022 Cato Handbook for Policymakers Arms Sales Report. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very interested to be speaking with, Jordan Cohen, who serves as a policy analyst in defense and foreign policy at the Cato Institute. We're going to be talking about Cato Handbook for Policymakers on Arms Sales, recently released, and it's written by Jordan Cohen and A. Trevor Thal. How are you doing today, Jordan? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. How are you? Very good, very good. And uh, I guess where we should start is, uh, how did you get involved in tackling the issue of arm sales. Yeah. So uh, Trevor Thrall, who is my co-author, was actually my dissertation chair at that point. And he had started doing this project. And the project basically asked a few questions. Question number one is, how many weapons does the US sell? Question number two is, why do we sell so many weapons? And question number three is, do we consider risk whatsoever in the arm sales process? I came aboard shortly thereafter, and we've done this arms sales risk index for now. The, the 2022 version, which is still on production, is 
going to be our fifth year doing it. And really since that point, I've gotten really interested in arm sales, both the risk aspect of it, the why we do it aspect, and kind of the legality behind how we sell weapons. Could you speak a little bit to just how dominant uh, the United States is when it comes to arms sales? I mean, we're, we're pretty much uh, the world's biggest exporter of weapons. We are. We are. And the uh, Stockholm Institute for P- or it's P- CIPRI, I don't remember the exact kind of what that stands for. But CIPRI does this report every year, and every year the U.S. is the world's dominant exporter of weapon sales. We see that in the risk index. At the last count, I believe, 168 countries have received U.S. weapons in the last decade, which is a pretty significant number if you think about it. And the U.S. really decides the rules of the game. Um that right countries that cannot get access to a lot of US weapons tend to buy from other nations, namely Russia, China, and then a little bit like France and Israel in there too. The countries that can't buy US weapons buy US weapons for a variety of reasons. One is they they are good, uh, but two is they send a signal. And everybody, what I talk to policymakers in the US or in other countries, everybody acknowledges this, that if you buy U.S. weapons, maybe to a very tiny degree or maybe to a very large degree, but if you buy U.S. weapons, you are getting you are getting a signal that the U.S. is willing to help you militarily. I want to get more into the risks, but first, just to give an idea, how much uh, money uh, goes into uh, weapons sales? I mean, uh, how much uh, U.S. government uh, approval um, when it comes to like, like I think it's 1.3 trillion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. The U.S. government has approved over 1.3 trillion in weapons sales to 167 countries. Can you add to that at all? I mean, th- this seems like it's a huge money maker. Oh, it's an enormous, it, it's an enormous amount of money. And to be clear, so every year, right, we hear the U.S. has approved, I think, like. $8 million to this country. And then Saudi Arabia gets a number of billion, right? And we hear it. What's important to note is those are congressional notifications, right? That means the president is telling Congress he wants to sell these weapons or or a company in the case of like direct commercial sales. But those weapons usually take three to five years to be delivered. And we're actually seeing this not, I don't necessarily think it's a problem, but if you're in Taiwan, you think it's a problem, which is Taiwan wants a lot of these weapons that Ukraine has access to. And it just like, it takes time. Taiwan is three to five years away from getting a lot of this stuff. What kind of weapons are we talking about? I mean, we're, we're talking about uh, everything ranging from, you know, fighter jets to even smaller arms. Yeah. And so it, right in the case of Taiwan, what Taiwan has wanted for a number of years are these big products, right? Like Taiwan really wanted the F-16, which the F-16 ostensibly for Taiwan is not all that useful in a case of war with China. What it does is it sends a signal to China, oh, the US has our back, because really without the US, we can't even operate this plane. Now, the catch is Taiwan recently has decided, oh, look at what's going on in Ukraine. Territorial defense could be really useful. And so that so they want javelins and stingers, which have been great for Ukraine. But to give credit to the Ukrainians, really since 2014, this is what they've been asking for, whereas Taiwan has not. And so Taiwan's made its own bet a little bit. But right, these big products, the F-35 for a lot of European countries, the F-16 for a lot of countries, they're not actually all that militarily useful. They send a signal to adversaries that the U.S. will defend them. Whether that's true or not is a different story, but they send that signal. 
So then uh, one of the arguments you make in the um, Cato Handbook report is that, you know, that the SILs that we're talking about in this report have a net negative impact on U.S. security and global human rights. Uh, what are some of the risks involved with regards to uh, the way arms sales uh, happen with regards to the United States? Yeah. So, I mean, it, I'm going to try to make it as like kind of quick and concise, but there's a lot within these. So the big one to me is, and the, or at least the big one I'm working on a lot lately is dispersion. And part of why I'm working it a lot late, on it a lot lately is because of Ukraine. But what, so what happens oftentimes is the U.S. sends a country weapons and this is not the case in Ukraine because a lot of that security incidents, but generally like Mexico is a great case, right? We send Mexico weapons. And then we do this thing called end use monitoring. End use monitoring is really in our, it was made in the Cold War and it's not actually designed to test how these weapons are used. It's designed to check, hey, did the right person get these weapons? And then it's done. It's pretty quick. And so the problem is uh, right with dispersion, Oftentimes, these weapons to Mexico end up in the hands of drug cartels, right? Or they end up in the hands of people we don't want them in the hands of, generally speaking. And then with those weapons, those people very frequently commit human rights abuses. And this is a big problem, and it's a problem we see very clearly in Afghanistan. We sent so many weapons to Afghanistan, whether through security assistance or arms sales, and the Taliban take over, and now the Taliban have been able to use these same weapons we sent to the Afghan military to A, cement their power in government, B, buy off local warlords, and C, fund the government, right? They sell these weapons, and it's a great way to raise money. And so dispersion to me is like a really big risk, especially because the U.S. end use monitoring program just doesn't actually solve the risks associated with dispersion. It doesn't even really care about those risks. It's not designed to, to stop them. Well, I was going to say, why is that? Why isn't it designed uh, to, to have that in mind? So a few reasons, right? One is it was designed during the Cold War, and then there was updates shortly thereafter. But the design was really to make sure these weapons weren't getting in the wrong hands and weren't going over to Soviet territory. The second is regarding security assistance, we have this thing called Leahy laws, which in theory should be usable on weapon sales, but they're not. And they, again, in theory, it's not always perfect, but they are what tracks human rights abuses for US weapons transfers. And so applying the Leahy laws to arms sales would be a big step forward. We just haven't done it yet. But then the third reason, and this is less kind of out there, but it, it logically to me makes a lot of sense is that buyers don't necessarily want all that end-use monitoring, right? And the U.S., from a security standpoint, probably doesn't want to do it either because if they do it to, let's say, Saudi Arabia, and then Saudi Arabia uses those same weapons to bomb civilians or school in Yemen, the U.S. doesn't want to say, oh, we actually checked to make sure they were doing the right thing. And turns out they were and now they're not, right? It's a really bad look. And so I think that, to me, is another issue with the whole process is that because we sell weapons to everywhere, the U.S. simply doesn't necessarily want to be in the position where it has to check to make sure those weapons aren't being used to abuse human rights. So something that I've heard from, from various guests that I've had on when talking about uh, issues related to arms sales and dispersion, I think there's people that are you know, legitimately concerned about it. I've also heard people try to push back uh, and say things to me like, uh, you know, there's no real way to deal with, um, there's no way to completely stop 
dispersion. You know, uh, some weapons are going to end up in the wrong hands. How would you respond to people who um, say that, especially since this is becoming um, more of a debate, especially with uh, the Ukraine conflict? Yeah. So, I mean, my general view on this is kind of like, as Voltaire said, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah, right. The the argument, and I've heard this a lot with Mexico, is the U.S. can't actually do anything to stop dispersion of the weapons that's already given to Mexico, so it's not worth it. That, to me, is like an insane argument, because sure, we're not going to be able to get rid of all the dispersion that's happened in Mexico and that the weapons have ended up in the wrong hands, but we certainly can do something, right? We can prevent future dispersion, or we could try. In the Ukraine context, it's a little bit different because Ukraine's in the middle of a war zone. So I actually just wrote a piece that we're shopping that should be out in the next week or so. And I've written on Mexico and Ukraine a lot lately, but Ukraine's a war zone. And so the government is really limited. The U.S. government is limited in how much it can actually do because it doesn't want to send troops to the war zone to just make sure these weapons are in the right hands. The other problem with Ukraine is when the conflict started, Zelensky said anybody that wants a handgun or a weapon, saw rifle can get one. So you like in Ukraine, the problem is so far gone that, yeah, the U.S. has to do something because we're starting to see reports that there's been cross-border trafficking, which to their credit, the State Department is instituting a training program. That training program is going to take a long time, but at least it's doing it. But we're also seeing stuff that weapons are ending up in the hands of people in Ukraine, right, that are great at fighting Russia, but post-conflict, we may not want those weapons in their hands, right? Like there are neo-Nazi groups in Ukraine, like whether we want to admit it or not, and these groups are great at fighting. And so they're going to get weapons. And it's kind of just the reality of war because of the US like desire to play a role in this conflict. But post-conflict, that's going to be a problem, right? We have now armed neo-Nazis to the teeth. And it's just, it's a bigger problem with the US grand strategy overall. Yeah, I was just going to add to that because I know a lot of people will debate, um, you know, the, the neo-Nazis in Ukraine issue. And, you know, what I always bring up to people is, you know, the numbers um, for fascists in one given country may start out small, right? Um, you know, Azov may have only um, a thousand or a couple thousand um, people in it that are, you know, hardcore neo-Nazis. But, you know, when a state is at war and, and nationalism is is rising, uh, that can grow pretty quickly and it can kind of get out of control. And I think it becomes an issue after the conflict in a lot of ways that we should all be concerned about. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. Like one of my favorite books is Ordinary Men, and I'm going to forget the name of the author, but it's about World War II and specifically about Germany, right? And like how the Nazis, they come to power and they get all these people that like otherwise you would not think uh, to be a Nazi to join their movement. And Right. A lot of times, like the most powerful group is just going to get people, even if those people don't agree with that group's motives. Frankly, we saw that in the US with the Republicans and Donald Trump, right? All these Republicans prior to Donald Trump winning the nomination attacked this guy. They did, they nobody wanted anything to do with him. There was the never Trump movement. And then Trump wins the nomination and everybody lines up behind them, behind him. And this is what happens when a powerful group has power. And it is a concern. And right, I think it's a huge concern whenever this conflict's over, but it's also a concern during the conflict. What if Azov Regiment gets a weapon that could strike Russian territory, right? We're already seeing they're getting those weapons now and the US is trying to like modify them. But what if they get a weapon and bomb a civilian center, right? Because then you're talking actual World War III risks. 
And that's just dangerous. And it doesn't need to be Azov. It could be even a not neo-Nazi group that just has a guy that really wants to do something to hit Russia. Yeah, well, I mean, you could apply it to, you know, um, the Middle East. I mean, you mentioned yeah. weapons getting into the hands of the Taliban. So there's that as well. Uh, you know, it's interesting, too, because uh, we were talking about how people say, oh, well, you can't completely eliminate dispersion from happening. But I think you mentioned that um, in the beginning of the handbook. You say um, it's impossible to examine every case in which American weapons are used improperly, uh, but we can still do better. So what are what are some of the ways we could um, mitigate the risks involved with uh, dispersion or just uh, U.S. arms sales in general? Yeah, I mean, so the first, and I always start with this one, and now it's relevant because a few people in Congress are actually tossing around this idea as a piece of legislation, is just like acknowledging the risks of a sale before it happens. And there's a big reason why that doesn't happen right now, which is the way arms sales are regulated in the United States primarily occurs through this piece of legislation called the Arms Export Control Act. And the Arms Export Control Act has a lot of technical details, but in essence, what it says is the president has to notify Congress of a weapon sale before before kind of accepting it. And then Congress has 30 days to debate the sale before the president can write a letter of approval. But to stop a sale, Congress needs to pass a joint resolution of disapproval. So both houses, both chambers, the House of Representatives and the Senate need to pass this legislation, which is hard to begin with. Uh, it's hard because in the House, there's actually rules for who can propose this legislation. And it's also just hard because you have a lot of politics going on. But then even if they pass the joint resolution of disapproval, and we saw this numerous times under the Trump administration, the president can veto it as long as Congress doesn't have a veto-proof majority. And because that's so rare, the president does a lot. The president at any point can just say, well, I'm going to veto this. And so then Congress doesn't even try to pass the resolution. That is a huge problem because it stifles debate on the topic, right? If you talk to an average person on the street, right? Like we're wonky. Probably anybody listening to this podcast is going to be a little bit wonky, right? We're go- we are we care about this stuff. But like my Uncle Randy, he doesn't care if we sent what we're sending F-16 to Saudi Arabia. That doesn't mean anything to him. And part of the reason for that is there's just not debate over it. And so one of the things... I have long been an advocate for is what's called flipping the script. And we saw this a little bit last year in legislation with Chris Murphy, uh, Peter Meyer, and a few others started proposing this. But what it would basically do is it would say anytime the president notifies Congress of a sale, Congress has to pass a joint resolution of approval. So whereas now the status quo because of the veto is that sales always go through. If Congress has to pass a resolution of approval and they don't do it, Because there's no legislation, the president can't veto it. So it would mean Congress has to debate the issues, and then they have to vote on the issues. And then the president, if he doesn't like how Congress voted, can't do anything about it. So to me, that is the big thing. And it's something that it's a high bar, but Congress is debating it. And I think that is the big way to mitigate risk in weapon sales. One thing that you get into in this report is... Uh, I guess the the unrivaled power of the executive branch. Uh, You know, I've heard people throw around terms like uh, we've been living in the imperial presidency ever since the uh, war on terror started. I mean, is there an issue uh, at hand with regards to presidential overreach uh, when it comes to arms sales? 
Yeah, I mean, so right, a lot of my dissertation look, and and it's not done yet, but like, uh, I, I've done the history, I've read the archives. Uh, that the Arms Export Control Act in '76 was actually passed as a way to restrain the president, because really before that, the president could do whatever he wanted. Richard Nixon happens. Turkey using U.S. weapons to invade Cyprus happens. And then Congress is like, we got to do something about this. And early on, it's not that they ever passed. They've never passed successfully a joint resolution of disapproval. But they did force Reagan and they forced Carter to kind of step back a little bit, especially on sales to Saudi Arabia. But what has happened since is that the president now just has more or less unrivaled power on where to sell weapons. Now, after that, that the president actually doesn't do much, right? After the sale is approved. But up to that process, the president controls everything. And if the president, like Donald Trump, or even like Joe Biden with Brett McGurk, who's running a lot of things, if they want to sell weapons to Qatar, because Qatar is now a major non-NATO ally, which is absolutely insane, but but they are, or, or Saudi Arabia, if they want, or Egypt, if they want to sell weapons and the country's willing to buy it, Congress really can't do anything to stop it. Is and, this because of uh, emergency declarations that a president can use? That's part of it, right? That was a big part under Trump, which is that he didn't give Congress time to debate because he just passed it under emergency use authorization. And Congress tried to do something about that, and they failed because the law just really wasn't on their side. But it's also just a general process, right? Like Rand Paul frequently like brings up these joint resolutions of disapproval or this resolution of disapproval he did with Egypt, he did it with the UAE, he did it with Saudi Arabia. And yeah, maybe the House agrees with them, maybe they don't. But even if they do, the Senate then has to, and the Senate's not going to, right? There's just not the votes in the Senate right now, which means the the arm sale goes through because as long as Congress does not pass a veto-proof resolution disapproving of the sale, the president just can go through with it. One thing I really wanted to talk about was uh, who are the top customers of um, U.S. arms sales and how do we define what is and what isn't uh, sort of a risky client or a risky country when it comes to arms sales? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, to a certain degree, it's up to the eye of the beholder and what one considers risky, right? So conversations I've had with policymakers, the, the statement is, well, we have leverage, right? So then a sale to Saudi Arabia is actually less risky because we can leverage them to doing what we want. I don't buy that argument because leverage not once in US history, to my mind, has been used from what like leverage from weapon sales. And I know what detractors will say. There's articles in War on the Rocks about this, which is, well, Jordan, just because leverage isn't used doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Again, to me, that is just a, an absurd argument because if you're never going to use the leverage, then it doesn't matter in the first place. And so with Saudi Arabia, we would see, and in the 2022 risk, the next year's risk index, when it's released, one of the things we look at is this idea of leverage. And you would expect if leverage exists on some indicator, whether it's democracy or kind of like the democracy of a military involvement in war, terrorism, like any of these metrics that countries that received a lot of weapons would start to do better over time. But we've been collecting this data for five years. And one thing I can say very clearly is Saudi Arabia hasn't gotten less risky. 
country like Mexico, they've gotten more risky and Mexico is a big client, right? On all these indicators, I'm not just like state fragility, corruption, terrorism, conflict. These countries are getting riskier or staying the same over time. You do have countries like Kuwait that have like left their involvement in the war in Yemen. And because of that, they're getting less risky, but that's not necessarily because of arms sales as much as it just is a foreign policy decision. And to me, right, the, the main risks from weapon sales is when you arm a country like Saudi Arabia, it's going to use that to go to war. And people say, well, you know, the Houthis are bombing the Saudis, so we need to give them weapons to protect them from that, especially because we have a military base right there. Right. But the Houthis wouldn't be bombing the Saudis if the Saudis weren't at war in Yemen. Right. So so when the U.S. does these things, it said it is very clearly stating we are okay with this war and we are okay with our weapons being used to fight this war. In a country like Mexico, the case is a little bit different because, yeah, there's like these kind of minor conflicts within the country, but the big issue isn't war. It's that ostensibly drug lords and drug cartels are getting weapons and then using these weapons to fire on civilians. And you're giving these weapons to a really corrupt government who as of last year actually launched a lawsuit and was like, listen, we can't handle this many weapons. You're not like we there. You don't monitor enough and we can't control them all. Right. That is a known risk. It's so known that the Mexican government is saying it's a risk. And the U.S. kind of just shrugs its shoulders and continues to send these small arms and like weapons to to Mexico. Another country like blast one is like a country like India, right, where the idea behind weapons is a little bit different than Saudi Arabia and different than Mexico, right, where Mexico is basically just about profit. Saudi Arabia is mainly just about profit, but also a little bit of strategy. India is about to turn Russia and China. And what we've seen is, in fact, India, since they've started buying a lot of U.S. weapons, have become less democratic. And turns out, as we're seeing in Ukraine, doesn't really care about great power competition and picking a side, also because they buy a lot of weapons from Russia. So these major clients are getting weapons for different reasons. But at the end of the day, the nothing's happening to these risks. They're, they're still there, even five, 10 years after we started these major weapon sales. I was going to say real quick, um, in terms of uh, the Middle East, um, I know you mentioned a few countries other than Saudi Arabia, uh, such as Egypt and also um, Iraq. And I, I was interested in Iraq because we don't hear much about Iraq anymore, but there is still, um, I mean, I guess the Islamic State was kind of defeated in 2017. However, there's still Islamic State insurgencies that happen in Iraq. So that could be an issue too when it comes to arms sales. Yeah. I mean, so the US, especially under Biden, I actually like, I think the spirit of Biden's decision to kind of pull back a little bit from the Middle East in terms of troop presence and increase weapon sales is a way to do these quote unquote over the horizon operations. I think the spirit's good, right? Like, I don't think we should have as many troops in the Middle East. The problem is the application is terrible. And these countries are getting US weapons to wage conflict, right? Qatar gets a lot of weapons because it's helpful in these over the horizon operations in Afghanistan. Qatar also is using a lot of these weapons to increase the state's power, which allows it to have what is ostensibly legalized slavery in the country. It's not by it's not constitutionally legalized slavery, but in all other ways it is. Right in Iraq, 
they aren't really able to control a lot of these weapons. But because Biden wants to fight these over the horizon operations against the Islamic State, they are get they are receiving weapons. Now, Iraq gets a little bit from security assistance, which is less true for like Qatar or even for like Saudi Arabia just buys everything. But yeah, I mean, it's a problem. And and as long I can I will hammer there's so much legalization, like legalized things that the US could do to reduce the risk from arms sales. But at the end of the day, the biggest way to reduce the risk is to say, you know what, we can't control politics throughout the rest of the world. It's not a sustainable strategy. It's resulting in Americans dying and it's resulting in citizens of other people dying. And until they do that, a lot of these changes are uh, are marginal, not unimportant, but marginal. So then in terms of the U.S. compared to um, other countries and also uh, not, not all the risks are the same, right? Like, uh, I think you talk in the report about, you know, some of the most expensive weapons, uh, like the F-35, they're not, we're, we're not always selling them to uh, countries as risky as, as Saudi Arabia. H- how would you um, compare our arms sales to, say, other countries like China and Russia, and also how, how there's different risks, um, and some countries are less risky than others when it comes to these arms sales? Yeah, so I'll kind of tackle that two different ways. So one is right, we sell the F thirty five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one, we sell weapons like the F thirty five to Australia. I'm not worried about Australia using that F thirty five in a way that's dangerous. We if we sell the F thirty five to Mexico, I, I don't think it would be much of a problem because F thirty fives are enormous. It's very difficult to disperse, like illegally disperse an F thirty five. So in a country like Mexico, the risk isn't these major systems, it's these small arms and light weapons. And the Trump administration actually changed the regulation of those weapons or of a lot of those weapons from the State Department to the Commerce Department. And we're seeing a 30% increase in handgun sales to Mexico since that change. Like I think that was a GAO report that had that statistic, but it's a crazy statistic. Those weapons are really risky in Mexico in a way an F-35 wouldn't be. An aircraft in Saudi Arabia, we don't sell them the F-35, but any aircraft that they could use to bomb Yemen is a different risk for Saudi Arabia. It's a much bigger risk for Saudi Arabia than handgun sales would be because, good or not, Saudi Arabia has a very strong control over its country. And so so it's about like what weapons are being sold to what countries and what risk that poses. Now, the catch is the U.S. kind of doesn't sell like a fighter aircraft to Mexico, just like they don't sell many handguns to Saudi Arabia. They do sell handguns to Saudi Arabia, but just in a different way. So I guess part two is how does this compare to Russia and China? Russia and China's market for weapons buyers is limited by who buys U.S. weapons, right? If you buy a lot of U.S. weapons, you're not going to buy Russian Chinese weapons because they're not going to be interoperable with the other equipment you have. So Russia and China sell to a very risky clientele because those are the clientele that the U.S. just won't sell to, right? The U.S. is not going to sell weapons to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. The U.S. is not going to sell weapons to Iran, but Russia and China will. North Korea is another one, right? The U.S. isn't going to sell weapons to North Korea, but China historically has. So then, if we could, I want to talk about Yemen a bit more. What? Because Yemen is, is pretty central to this report you wrote. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I argue with people. I feel like some people either forget about Yemen or they'll make um, excuses, as you mentioned. They'll say, oh, the, but the Houthis are doing this. Uh, but, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, the support for, for Saudi Arabia's intervention into Yemen, I think it undermines a lot of Joe Biden's stated aims uh, when it comes to U.S. foreign policy and diplomacy. 
Yeah, I, 100%. So to me, the Yemen situation is incredibly tragic. And I actually think like there's all these debates about is the U.S. involved or not? And does the U.S. support the war or not? I think it's pretty simple. Without U.S. support, Saudi Arabia couldn't fight the war, period. Without U.S. fighter planes, without U.S. radar, right? I mean, there's like crazy announcements of weapon sales when we sell like a radar system or a tracking system to Saudi Arabia that it literally says, so this weapon won't be used against innocent civilians, right? Saudi Arabia basically asked for a bunch of these weapons after they bombed a school bus. Because they're like, well, we we actually couldn't like track where the missile was going, so we need better tech to do that. And the U.S. gives it. So to me, it's very simple, right? The Houthis wouldn't attack Saudi Arabia and the, near the U.S. military base if Saudi Arabia wasn't fighting this war. It is... I, in my mind, arguably the most tragic humanitarian disaster we've seen in the last 20 years, bar, right, some like smaller conflicts in Africa. But it, what makes it so sad to me is the U.S. knows what's happening, right? And this, it is a Biden problem. I agree with you. It undermines Biden's foreign policy. Part of that is Biden's being advised on the Gulf by Brett McGurk, who is a big kind of Saudi, UAE, Qatari supporter. But it happened under Trump, which again, right, you, you have these connections to Saudi Arabia. And it started under the Obama administration, right? And, and maybe not to this degree, but the Obama administration's drone warfare in the Middle East is not terribly dissimilar. We are giving other countries access to drones to fight, quote unquote, terrorists. And it gets back to this over the horizon thing. Biden wants to support Saudi Arabia because he thinks Saudi Arabia can help him achieve aims in the Middle East. And if that means killing a bunch of innocent Yemeni civilians, he's more or less willing to do it. And he said so in the op-ed he wrote before he met with Mohammed bin Salman. It, it sounds like, in other words, um, Biden's strategy right now may be to, you know, let's not get the U.S. directly involved. Let's rely on, say, Saudi Arabia or, you know, I was just talking to someone about Syria, you know, let's look towards Turkey, although, you know, they're I, I think the U.S. is pushing back on Turkey in some ways. But what I'm saying is it, it seems like the strategy right now is let's get out of the Middle East and rely on these countries uh, to take care of things for us in a way. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that is the crux of his strategy. I, I, To me, one of the big concerns I have, and I mean, I will give kind of primacists like Corey Shockey, uh, a, who wants the U.S. to be involved everywhere, I'll give her credit because what she says, and it's true, is what the U.S. is spending on its military is not nearly enough to be involved everywhere in her view that we need to be. And I think that is something the Biden administration has struggled with, right? The Biden administration doesn't really want to be involved in the Middle East, but it still needs budget to send and help train Middle Eastern countries on U.S. weapons, right? Or not, and that costs money. And the Biden administration is trying really hard to say we can take these small defense budget increases and be involved everywhere. And what we're seeing in Ukraine and Taiwan right now, what we're seeing in the Middle East right now is he can't, we can't, and because we try, bad things happen. And that to me is scary. And I think we in the US have not had the honest conversation, but need to have the honest conversation is, which is we can't be involved everywhere. And where are we going to cut? And that's going to result maybe in some ugly things. But this, right, this idea, China is now meeting with Saudi Arabia. And this idea, well, oh, no, Saudi Arabia is going to end up in China's hands. Let, let it be China's problem, right? If the U.S. wants to 
get away. The best way to do it is let them be China's problem, right? Okay, the bad stuff won't necessarily happen because China's going to do the same thing the U.S. did. I don't think many, I don't think the bad things are as severe as a lot of people say they are. But that is that is a conversation that the Biden administration has not publicly had. And what's funny is I've done, right, for my dissertation, a lot of research on the congressional archives on arms sales. And you want to know one of the biggest supporters of more Congress on arms sale, congressional intervention on arms sales and more human rights in the arms sales process? You want to know who one of the biggest Congress people was? Joe Biden. Senator Joe Biden was really, really for looking at human rights and avoiding human rights catastrophes from weapon sales. And unfortunately, that senator just isn't, he's not there anymore. Do you think, I mean, I'm not defending Biden here, but at least not too much, but do you think there's aspects of how Biden wants to um, carry out foreign policy that may be slightly better than certain previous administrations or um, like what's the good and the bad with regards to how Biden is, is running things right now? Yeah, I mean, the good news for Biden, and we just saw this in the election and the midterms, is compared to Trump, it, 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 he pretty much could, he, he's just, like people pretty much are okay with him. And that goes on things like immigration where like he's really not good, but he's better than Trump. And like at Cato, we have a few scholars that talk about this, but on foreign policy, it's, I actually hesitate to say like he's noticeably better, at least in terms of my viewpoints. But right when it comes to Ukraine, I have not been always supportive of sending them as many weapons as we have and as being involved as we have been. But to credit the Biden administration, he hasn't sent them weapons that will start World War III with Russia. And to his credit, like despite all the gaffes on Taiwan, China still hasn't attacked Taiwan. And frankly, relations between those two countries are affected more by domestic politics in those two countries than they have been by the Biden administration. So like, I think he does deserve some credit there. His arms sales purchases are not as risky as the Trump administration's. That He deserves credit for that. Part of that is he sends a lot of weapons to kind of NATO countries, but it's better than Trump. And so I think he deserves credit. The problem is, I'm a big fan of marginal gains, right? A lot of my work is about legislation the U.S. can pass that would make arms sales safer or would make arms sales more like less of a security risk for the United States. But at the end of the day, like the problem with marginal changes is they're only marginal and the big problems still remain. So something that I, I think we should sort of deal with here is I know we live in a very politically polarized environment in America right now. And I, I know Cato is, is more probably uh, to the libertarian sort of um, side of things and a lot of its thinking um, with a lot of its fellows there. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like the arms sales issue, uh, maybe for libertarians or some of the people at Cato, um, it's about wasteful spending or it, it's about, you know, the, this isn't necessarily protecting U.S. interests. Do you think there's certain alignments that can be made between um, people on the left who may have uh, different reasons for being concerned with arms sales. Could you speak a little to that? Because uh, I think there's just human rights concerns and humanitarian concerns, as well as um, concerns about wasteful spending and whether or not these arms sales are actually protecting U.S. interests. Yeah, absolutely. So like kind of two kind of 
clapping old Cato employees, giving them some applause, is that when Emma Ashford and Trevor Thrall were at Cato's foreign policy department, they ran this Power Problems podcast that now John Glazer runs, but they had a whole segment on where, like, on foreign policy, can Democrats and libertarians shake hands? And the answer they came to is there's a lot of areas, like, on actually most of them, the foreign policy should be the same. And then the other question is, just broadly speaking, where are libertarians placed in the current U.S. political spectrum? And this is my opinion. This is not representative of Cato. It is just my opinion is that I think we are firmly in the middle on a lot of issues. Yeah, we may find people like Senator Pat Toomey to be a bigger kind of advocate of our position. But on like foreign policy, right, we had Chris Murphy come speak at Cato. We had Representative Sarah Jacobs, who in my mind, is one of the sharpest foreign policy minds in Congress right now. She spoke at Cato, and she was great. And I think there is an argument, like one of the areas we really want to outreach to on foreign policy isn't just Republican congresspersons or the State Department, but it's Democrats too. We want to do everything because like, our goal isn't to prop up one side. My goal isn't to prop up one side with good arguments. It's to get change accomplished. So- Another aspect of this report that I, I don't think we've mentioned um, in detail yet is uh, the issue with uh, Central America's Northern Triangle. Uh, could you speak to how that factors into your report? Yeah. So what ends up happening is whether it's between U.S. sales or weapons dispersion, mainly from Mexico, the Northern Triangle gets a lot of U.S. weapons. And the Northern Triangle is... One of, if not the it, one of, if not the most difficult regions to live in in terms of your safety and security. They have an incredibly high homicide rate. They have incredibly high kind of drug violence, incredibly high gang violence. And a lot of this is done with US weapons. And it's done from handguns or ammunition. It's not these major systems. And I mentioned this earlier, but Part of the problem is the Trump era policy, and it's not the whole problem, but part of it when regulation switched from the State Department to the Commerce Department, things like how well could Mexico control these weapons stopped being considered. And it was more of how good of a financial investment is this, or is this a danger to US finances? And so what ends up happening is there's a lot of weapons in Central America that are US weapons that are being used to kill other people. And there have been numerous government uh, accountability office GAO reports over the past few years that have looked at this. And the answer is just a lot of these weapons there are US weapons and they're not tracked. They're not collected. We can't monitor them because we don't really monitor any use. And we, we're not going to be able to just go send troops. I mean, we could, but it's dangerous and probably a bad idea to send military troops to go collect those weapons. So they are now just being used. And funnily enough, the U.S. actually spends a lot of money trying to gather them back, trying to get them back. But we still sell those weapons. And it's really tragic, like beyond just foreign policy and security, whereas the U.S. is contributing to a war in Yemen, the U.S. is also contributing to just massive violence in Central America. So it's interesting. Uh, how do you think we could improve something like end-use monitoring of U.S. weapons sales? I mean, to me, the big thing is we actually monitor uh, the end-use, right? We monitor not only did the weapons arrive at the correct location, 
but we should monitor, do they stay at that location? We should monitor, okay, so they're at the location. Are they being used to kill innocent people or for any reason that is not described in the sale itself? But that takes an investment. And so in Ukraine, like this is not necessarily a Ukraine thing. It's just a 2020 thing. There was this report by the DOD inspector general about weapons monitoring in Ukraine. And they come to a lot of conclusions, but one of the conclusions they come to is, hey, we're not actually monitoring where these weapons are ending up. We're struggling with it. We should do more. And so it goes back to DOD and to Defense Security Cooperation Agency. And the response they give is, yeah, we hear you. It would be too costly. We we just can't do it. And that, to me, is a real problem. And the U.S. needs to face that, right? And I think it would be really refreshing. It will never happen. But if the president, when they announce an arms sale, says, when it comes out through the Defense Security Cooperation Agency and it says, we know this weapon is going to be used to kill innocent civilians and we don't care. And they don't say that because it's awful, but it is implicit in all of these sales is that at the end of the day, people's lives in the Northern Triangle to to people kind of conducting these sales just isn't as important as the profit gained. And that's sad and it's awful, but it's unfortunately the reality. It sounds like the other aspect of this is that we really need to find a way to prevent presidents from unilaterally selling weapons to, you know, whoever, whoever, whoever they want. Um, exactly. We, we, we really need um, more just, I guess, oversight. Yeah. I mean, right. Think about it. So when the president announces a sale of radar to Yemen, that doesn't really get debated in Congress. If it had to be debated for a sale to pass, I bet you a lot of money that people like Sarah Jacobs or Nora Torres or Rand Paul or even maybe somebody like a Mitt Romney, right? Like the whole spectrum, Chris Murphy, all, all these guys would bring up, hey, that radar is going to be used to kill some people. And maybe that doesn't change anything, but at least it starts a conversation. And I think it does because I think, what, and this is part of my dissertation. I asked like, when does Congress effectively pass this legislation that restricts arms sales? And the big answer I've come to looking throughout history is it's when there's this arms sales scandal, right? When something so big about arms sales hits the news, that the president isn't willing to veto the legislation and that Congress is willing to act on it. You want to know how to make a lot more arms sale scandals? It's to start forcing this debate. And I think to me, that is the biggest change we could make that I actually think would be would fundamentally shift where and how the US sends weapons to other countries. I just had one or two more questions. Um... In terms of human rights, right? I mean, selling weapons uh, to a country like Saudi Arabia in the way that we sell them. I mean, they're they're one of our biggest uh, clients when it comes to U.S. arms. Uh, you know, I feel like this has real repercussions for U.S. foreign policy because we always talk. Biden talks a lot about you know uh, we we need to have uh, policies that are based on dignity towards people and respect for human rights. Um, and you know, I see a lot of people complain about how. Um, countries deemed adversaries to the U.S. U.S. adversaries uh, will always do a whataboutism and say, oh, well, the U.S. does this, this, and this. Uh, but it does sort of undermine our credibility when we're selling weapons to countries with massive human rights abuse records. Um, is, is that? Do you think that's a fair criticism to be made, or uh, is that an issue that people should think about more? 
I mean, yeah, it's it it, is, it definitely is, and it is certainly ironic, right? Again, if we're selling these weapons, and if leverage is a thing, and I, I've written a lot about this because it's fascinating to me. Everybody, if you respond to somebody like me, the response always is, and if we don't sell to Saudi Arabia, China and Russia will. Here's the problem with that. It, it, then you theoretically should have leverage. And for whatever reason, it's not being used because Saudi Arabia, if they have to transition their entire military to Russian and Chinese weapons, that's going to come at a huge cost. So, so then the U.S. should have leverage and they just don't. And the question I always ask is, or they don't use it. And the question I ask is why? And like, there's a lot of discussions about this, right? In the 70s, you have Kissinger saying, no, 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 no. We may have the leverage, but we don't want to use it because the second we use that leverage is the second every country knows we can use it and they change the foreign policy towards us. So that's one theory why it's going to be used. Another theory is it just doesn't exist, right? Like, and I've read this in the archives where the Nick or where the Ford administration is talking to Turkey and it's like, hey, Turkey, stop it. Like, stop using our weapons to invade Cyprus. And Turkey says, well, it's too late. So, no. And that and it's certainly ironic that we make that argument because if it doesn't give us leverage, then why does it matter if Russia or China sell to Saudi Arabia if they won't have leverage either? And to me, that's a big thing. It's a big problem. And a second thing you said is that it kind of does, like in theory, allow for this influence across the globe in maybe a bad way. And I think that's true because, right, if you look at ways the U.S. can show its commitment. Way number one is sending military to defend your territory, right? That's clearly the number one way. The number two way is maybe something like if we send you a lot of really good military like tools and the forms of security assistance. But then the third way is sending the best military tools as an arms sale. And I think the U.S. is, and I think the Biden administration especially, is very cognizant of that. And that is a way they've chosen to show U.S. influence in areas where we may want to reduce the military, and I just think it's dangerous because I think it continues U.S. involvement, which is inherently dangerous and inherently, I think, needs to be reduced. But in way number two, it also means these countries can use your weapons for things against your interests, and there's really nothing you're going to be able to do about it. I wanted to add real quick because I just remembered it. Um, you know, with regards to people that are really concerned with human rights issues um, at home and abroad, you know, uh, I think a lot of people have been focused because of the World Cup on on Qatar, right? Um, and you know, I think people very sincerely are upset about the the abuses against labor migrants, LGBTQ people. But if we're concerned about that, I think we also have to be concerned about the fact that we just, I mean, Biden's administration okayed a one billion dollar arms sales uh, to Qatar uh, during a World Cup match. So, yep. uh, how how does human rights uh, supporters? Um, how can they figure into this debate about arms sales? Yeah, I mean, the crazy thing about Qatar is actually a lot of the air defense they've used during the World Cup comes from the, the United States weapons. But I, I, it is a problem, right? And like, I am somebody that loves soccer. Uh, if you talk to my girlfriend, she would say I'm absolutely obnoxious with how much soccer I watch. It's really hard to watch the World Cup because the cost of this World Cup were so incredibly high in the human cost and the amount of civilians that died or were severely injured and the okaying of what ostensibly is legalized slavery in the country. We, during the preparation for this World Cup, as, we, as the Biden administration knew this bad stuff was happening, 
made Qatar a major non-NATO ally. That means they can get weapons a lot faster and they can get different types of weapons easier than any other country that is not a treaty or major non-NATO ally. But the Biden administration, no matter what it said on the campaign trail, just has not backed up this concern of global human rights. And it does with Saudi Arabia, with Egypt, with Qatar. Sometimes it can do things like I think Ukraine is a way it's doing this now and saying, no, 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 we care about human rights because we're arming Ukraine even at risks our own country. But the, they're the, right. Like that's a different conversation. They're not supporting Ukraine because of human rights issues. It's great power competition. The human rights thing is potentially potentially right because as a war happens more people die but potentially it's a secondary benefit with qatar saudi arabia egypt right like the government can say we care about lgbtq rights the government can say we care about human rights we don't want innocents dying every dollar in weapons it sends to those countries leads to more death and leads to more abusive human rights the philippines are another country where the u.s just sends them so many weapons that it supports the government doing terrible things to its population. And it's just sad. And I, I, without major changes to how the arms sales process works, I, I fear it will continue. The last thing I want to touch upon, since we were talking about uh, Central America's Northern Triangle earlier, and you know these weapons are inflicting death. Um, but another interesting aspect of this is, I think a lot of people will look at arms sales or just foreign policy in general, um, you know, maybe people that, as you said, aren't as wonky as us necessarily, they'll say, well, how does this affect me, right? Uh, but, you know, ultimately, I think there are forms of blowback that can come out of these arms sales. Um, I mean, you, you, I think the way weapons are sold, uh, if they're used in a certain way, I mean, it can create refugee crises, um, you know, uh, so this affects us domestically, too, in ways that we don't always think about, correct? Oh, 100%. Yes, it creates refugee crises. You want to fix a lot of the problems with, like, I, I mean, my view on immigration notwithstanding, like, there's major immigration flows into the United States because these weapons are in those countries, right? The drug cartels, which the Republicans now seem to, like, just love talking about is these drug cartels and fentanyl. You want to know where those cartels got most of their weapons? It's from the United States. And so these same Republicans that criticize that should be consistent and then maybe criticize US weapons sales processes processes, but they don't. And yeah, I mean it affects the other thing, and this is not necessarily my area of expertise, but there's a lot of data that defense industries are kind of uh uh and the benefit to the economies of these countries are a misnomer because they're fairly inefficient in terms of uh, a system, right? Once a weapon's sold, that is done. Right? It's not like healthcare where Healthcare is continuous, right? Even like you buy healthcare, you choose not to buy healthcare, you still are in danger of getting sick. And a lot of the literature on the defense industry just says that it is not a sustainable, not an efficient form of an industry, but because they spend so much on lobbying and because in certain areas they employ so many people, right? It's very easy to tell somebody that's employed by Lockheed Martin, actually Lockheed, like if we got rid of Lockheed and added a health industry, it would be much more efficient because that the person would say, well, I'd be out of a job. And so that's hard, but it's also important to look at these big, big picture stories. The arms industry also supports the US going to war, right? If the US could not pay for its weapons, then it couldn't go to war. And a lot of the way it pays for those weapons is through offsets. So when it sells a weapon to Saudi Arabia, it's already bought that weapon. And what Saudi Arabia pays for it offsets the cost. Yeah. 
So um, I want to close out here. I also wanted to add, I, I hope no one takes the last question as me. I mean, personally, I'm not against immigration, but I've always found it weird that people that are concerned about immigration uh, don't look at the way that our foreign policy affects immigration. So that's all I was getting out with that last question. Absolutely. I'm, I'm pretty pro-immigration I No, me too. Like, I'm all for open board. Like, I am probably more radical on immigration than most in the Democratic Party. Like, I'm all for it. But, but like... It is true, right? If you are concerned about immigration, if you're a Republican concerned about immigration or a Democrat even, then you also need to be really concerned about where these drug cartels are getting their weapons from. So in closing, uh, what do you want my listeners to get out of the conversation we've been having for the past, uh, you know, 50 or so odd minutes? And, uh, you know, what, what are the key points to the report that you hope they really latch on to and understand? Yeah. So, I mean, for the wonky listeners, I really encourage you guys just to read the Cato handbook and the arms sales chapter. But for anybody, well, wonky or not, I think paying attention to who is buying weapons and where they are being used is really important. Because if you do that, you can contact your congressperson. And that makes a difference. When Congress knows that their constituents care about an issue, they're more likely to do something. And we really need Congress to pass more broad legislation that's not just stopping an individual sale, but that changes the way the sales process works. Well, I want to thank you, Jordan Cohen, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? I'm assuming they can go to Cato. Are you also on Twitter or anything like that? Yep. So they can go to the Cato website. All my work is there. You can also go to my Twitter. I'm at jbcohen92. I have a website that I don't really update, so that's probably not a good way to do it. But yeah, the Cato website or Twitter, or you can contact me by email at jcohen at cato.org. I'm also happy to answer any questions. So that, those are the three best ways. Next up, Mitch Robson of the Chicago Thinker joins us to discuss his recent confrontation with Liz Cheney over the Iraq war. It all went down at a recent IOP event and the video of Mitch grilling Liz Cheney has since gone viral. Mitch and I come from admittedly opposite ends of the political spectrum, but I think it's important to remember the Bush administration era and the Iraq war. So with that in mind, let's get right to it with Mitch Robson of the Chicago Thinker. Welcome to Parallax Views. The guest that I was interested in speaking with uh, due to an encounter he had with Liz Cheney, Mitchell Robson of the Chicago Thinker. Uh, I, for people that don't know, the Chicago Thinker is, I would say, a, a much more conservative outlet than, than maybe what I do here and some of the guests I usually have on. But I think we can all agree that uh, the rehabilitation of Liz Cheney is not exactly something, you know, that any of us are happy about, but how are you doing, Mitch? I'm good. How are you? I'm, thanks for having me on. Very good. Um, I'm doing great. And I was really interested when I saw on antiwar.com that you uh, sort of had an encounter uh, with Liz Cheney at an IOP event. Maybe you could talk about how that came about and uh, how you ended up questioning her about her father and the Iraq war. Sure. Yeah. So uh, for those who don't know, the U Chicago has an uh, institute of politics um, where they they invite speakers, um, you know, typically left leaning speakers, although they 
you know, have some right-leaning speakers as well. Generally, when they do invite right-leaning speakers, it is more of the neoconservative flavor like Liz Cheney, although I, I have to give them credit. They are bringing, you know, Mike Pence tomorrow, which is going to be interesting. But but we, we, we when we started, I'm a junior in college. Um, when we started, I was an incoming freshman. And we, we once kind of in-person events became a thing again, uh, last year, we, we thought it would be a good idea, you know, to, to have people go to these events and just ask them honest questions that, that, that maybe they're not used to being asked in, in a forum where they, you know, they think they're just going to receive very fawning questions. And so we've done that with, with, uh, you know, we made serious headlines for doing so with Ann Applebaum of the Atlantic and, and Brian Stelter. And we did that, you know, back in April and, um, we we figured you know Liz Cheney was coming. We we have a relationship with IOP now. They they uh, do. Um, they're you know we're kind of their their gadflies. They like us, but also know that we um, cause healthy tr- trouble, honest trouble. Um, but they they brought Liz Cheney, and, and three of us got press passes. And um, you know we we decided to ask her some questions, and and I just figured you know um, my other two friends who who ask questions. Um, you know, I don't think that they 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 ask some great questions. They they focus more on election integrity in January sixth. Um, whereas for me, you know, war is a really big issue. So I, I really wanted to focus on that. And and um I particularly was frustrated with the fact that there had just been this gigantic revisionist history of the Cheney family just because they said, you know, Donald Trump uh was an unsavory fellow, which pretty much anybody could say. Um, and so I was, I was, um, not happy with the fact that she brought out her father to say a real man wouldn't lie to his supporters was the quote that she, that, that he said in his ad for her regarding Donald Trump, which, um, kind of, I said, all right, well, we, we're going to have to dust off some of, um, the lies that, that, uh, representative Cheney and her father told their supporters. Um, so that so, kind of precipitated so she had brought it. up her own father comparing him to Trump saying, or contrasting him to Trump saying, you know, my father didn't lie, like, like, okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't, I I don't, you know, I want to make it, I tried to make this in the framing of my question. I wanted to make it explicitly clear. You know, I don't think people should be impeached for the sins of their father. Um, I mean, you know, my dad's a great guy. I don't agree with him on everything. Um, I wouldn't, you know, expect someone to grow me about his opinions. But the, the fact of the matter is, she has gone with his opinions every in in every step of the way when she's gone with those opinions when she worked under the w, George W Bush administration and she trotted out her father to say on her behalf in her Republican um congressional primary election um she brought him out to say that a real man wouldn't lie to his supporters so in my mind you're staking yourself to your which I you know, touched on at the end of the article I wrote about this, like you are staking yourself to your father's credibility on the truth. If you're bringing him out to say that, you know, you're not a real man if you lie to your supporters. So, I, I mean, first off, I want to say, I think you handled it really respectfully. I mean, you, you thanked her for, you know, coming there and whatnot, and then you just got into the root of the issue. So what was it that you exactly said to her? I have the the quotes pulled up, but maybe if you want to just reiterate it in, in your own way, what you asked her. Sure. So I asked her about, you know, um, 
I, I, I mentioned, you know, the, this quote about a real man not lying to his supporters. And, and then I said, you know, we a lot of us will remember that, you know, um, Dick Cheney, uh, as vice president, said many claims that, you know, it's not only like it, it's not one of those things where he, he said these things that, you know, everybody thought was true. And then after the fact, you know, it came out, uh, oh, man, you know, um, we were wrong you know, honest mistake. You no, know, he said, I, I selected out of all the different statements I selected, I made sure to select ones where he was saying things that were disputed at best or fully discredited by U.S. intelligence, you know, not not by uh, me or by Scott Horton, but by the CIA or the FBI um, that he was saying as though they were, you know, objective certainty uh, was the case. And so I, I brought up... Um, one, I brought up his contention that um, Mohammed Atta, you know, the 9-11 hijacker, um, met with Iraqi intelligence in Prague um, because that was used to try to demonstrate um, a, a link between uh, Iraq and uh, al-Qaeda. Um, I brought up, um, I think this, the second point I brought up was um, the supposed established oper- the phrase I used was a, which becomes important in her answer to the question was that there was an established operational, operational relationship between the yeah, operational underline asterisk whatever highlight um, established operational relationship between Al Qaeda and Iraq um, and Dick Cheney you know makes very clear what exactly he means by that uh, um, and third that Saddam Hussein you know possessed. Uh, weapons of mass destruction. Um, and then I, I basically said, you know, you're in the context of the, you know, saying that a real man wouldn't lie to his supporters, you know, that what she focuses on in, in the January 6th committee, and I, I made sure to say that January 6th was undoubtedly awful, but I just said, you know, there, I kind of implied that there's a sense of proportionality here, you know, January 6th was terrible. The Iraq war, though, did kill hundreds of thousands of people, which, um, you know, uh, you know, the, the shaman can't say that that he did. So there, there does have to be a, a sense of proportionality um, with these lies. And, and I, you know, so I, I mentioned January 6th in terms of her, why she brought up the whole idea of not lying to your supporters and then say, you know, the Iraq war did kill hundreds of thousands. And then, um, you know, I basically just closed by asking her that the, the question I asked was, you know, whether her supporters or whether whether it makes sense that you know the voter base um you know felt disillusioned by you know these lies from from you know her father and and um you mean the voter base for like the, the voter base I guess for just Americans Republicans or America yeah well yeah I, I really think just the Iraq Americans. War, I think the Iraq war in a lot of ways just disillusioned a lot of Americans and um uh, you know in a lot of ways I think that's why we may have seen the rise of Trump. Uh, this this disillusionment that I think people had with the sort of Bush Cheney right. regime. Uh, so what was uh, Ch- um, Liz Cheney's response? I think she went out right right away saying, you know, the critics of Mr. Cheney are wrong, and uh, she. Yeah. I, I think she was a bit. Um, how do I put it? Uh, Passive aggressive in her response, maybe. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So so she started. You know. The, 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 she opened her response by saying they're wrong and she let it sit there and the audience, um, you know, gave this gigantic applause. And and, and it's Which important. is weird given that these yeah. people probably hate it uh, 
Dick Cheney when he when he was vice president. Well, the, the, well, that was I, I, you know, I, I kind of I made I made sure to point this out in my article, like the 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 the, the two main demographics at these events, these high profile IOP events, um, are number one, yes, like college students my age who like you know go to U Chicago have access to these events, um, and number two is you know, um, boomer Democrats who, who live in Hyde Park. Hyde Park is, you know, where U Chicago is. It's a very, um, there are very wealthy areas of Hyde Park and, and it's, you know, it votes overwhelmingly. I think it voted upwards of 90% for Biden. And so it's a very liberal demographic. And so I, you know, um, see these, see these people, a lot of them are wearing, you know, like N95 COVID masks, which, you know, regardless of whether you think they're great, you think they're terrible, um, generally in 2022, for the most part, if you're wearing one, you're, you're probably Democrat. So obviously I didn't survey who was the audience, but it was primarily college students of probably all political stripes, maybe predominantly left, um, uh, who at least have an excuse to not know about the Iraq war. I mean, I shouldn't say they have an excuse, but more of an excuse because they were very young when this was happening. Um, and but then you have these Democrats who, who probably half of them were saying that Dick Cheney, like 15 years ago, were saying that Dick Cheney's a, a bloodthirsty monster. Um, so it was just weird to see, you know, I think the maybe the biggest applause that she got. I mean, I don't don't quote me on that, but it had to have been one of the biggest applauses she got that event was when she opened by just saying they're wrong. That's all she had to say to get this overwhelming uh, hand clapping. So then she also talked about how, uh, I, I guess, it's important to have some facts undergirding the discussion as well. What what else did she have to say, though? I mean, and, and no. what, what do you think the problems with her response were to you? Sure. So you mentioned that, yeah, that she, she said it's important to have some facts under undergirding the discussion. And the thing is, like, that was actually the point of my question, right, is, is you know, I... <laughs> I think I think it's obvious that if I'm asking that kind of question, I, I'm probably, you know, opposed to the Iraq war. But technically, you know, that that question, you know, you could ask that and be, you know, pro-Iraq war. The point was actually not to push, you know, one like belief on the invasion of Iraq or not. It was actually to just say that, you know, hey, if we're making policy decisions, they need to be based on facts. And she, you know, time and time again. Her father did not base these policy decisions on facts, and so so the you know the analogy I would give is is you know um, you know if I you know walk up to someone on the street and and hit them um, you know a policy debate would be you know well what should we do with with Mitchell you know he hit someone you know how do we address that but a policy debate is not saying you know if some crazy person said Mitch didn't hit anyone you know that 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 would just be denying the facts. And so the point I was trying to get out with the question is policy debates, which she said, you know, she, she said, she quote, disagreed with my characterization of the policy surrounding Iraq. And I actually didn't really say anything about the policy surrounding Iraq in terms of like military strategy or, or whether or not we should invade. I was simply talking about the, the, whether or not the statements made well, you were to talking about justify the pretext, this war, yeah, the, the pretext, the pretext the war, right? Essentially, right. And I guess she also tried to talk about, well, there there were senior Al Qaeda leaders that you know were given safe haven 
um, in Iraq, but that that's why we put the asterisks by operational. So maybe respond yeah. to that. Yeah. 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 So, so, okay. So out of, uh, you know, like I said, I made three, I made three contentions of, of things that, you know, her father said, um, you know, took as, as truth that were either discredited or disputed by us intelligence at the time. Um, two out of the three, she didn't address at all. She didn't address Mohammed Atta in Prague and she did not address uh, weapons of mass destruction. She did decide to address the established operational relationship um, between Al Qaeda and Iraq. She, you know, even Wikipedia labels as as a conspiracy theory um, that's been debunked. And and um, what she said, there were really two problems um, with what she said. Um, the latter, I would say, I'm indebted, you know, to Scott Horton for pointing out. But I would say, first of all, she. And I said established operational relationship. She fed it back to me as a quote connection. She said that um, you know there was a connection because as you, you know you pointed out, um, she said that there were senior leaders, including the number two, in you know taking safe haven in Iraq. She's talking about Zawahiri, and um, the first problem with that, you know, beyond getting the actual tangible facts wrong, was. Her characterization of what I said, I said an operational relationship, which means, you know, I, I quoted in my article, I'll actually just, you know, read it because, you know, I have it in front of me. But but Cheney, Dick Cheney said in 2004 that the best source of information about the relationship between Al Qaeda and Iraq was a weekly standard article that said, quote, an operational relationship from the early 1990s to 2003 that involved training in explosives and weapons of mass destruction, logistical support for terrorist attacks, Al-Qaeda training camps and safe haven in Iraq, and Iraqi financial support for Al-Qaeda, perhaps even for Mohammed Atta. So that's what so Dick Cheney, you know, that is not a, you know, merely some leaders taking safe haven in Iraq, which is why she said connection, is not an operational relationship where Iraq is essentially working to train Al Qaeda terrorists and um, and in providing financial support for you know Atta the the nine eleven hijacker and um, so so she said connection she she brought that up that you know the, that there was some leaders taking safe haven in Iraq but the problem which is problem number two um, aside from the fact that safe haven wouldn't constitute an operational relationship was that she wasn't right about the number two you know taking safe haven in Iraq. As as Scott Horton pointed out to me, I, I, I um, you know, he noticed my my video because it was making the rounds on social media and he he did a thread on it. So I, I um, you know, got comment from him for my article. And, and what he pointed out was that the number two, she didn't, she didn't, Liz Cheney didn't say his name in, in the answer to the question, but um, uh, the number two is Ayman al-Zawahiri. And um, she she said that that uh, he she said the number two was taking safe haven in Iraq and um, Scott Horton pointed out that that even the most hawkish neoconservatives never made that claim that that he he fled from Afghanistan into Pakistan stayed there um, until we pulled out of Afghanistan in 2021 and what who she was thinking of was Abu Masib al Zarqawi not Zawahiri who. Uh, had no connection. He was up, you know, when we invaded Iraq, he was up in Kurdistan, far away from Baghdad. There was no connection for him, uh, 
he had no, you know, logistical connection between either Saddam Hussein or Al-Qaeda, but he only became part of Al-Qaeda, like, I think a, a year and a half into the invasion of Iraq when, when he decided to join forces with bin Laden. And um, there's a lot of propaganda surrounding that, but, but basically she somehow, you know, by no account was he the number two in Al-Qaeda. He was not linked with Al-Qaeda um, until after we invaded Iraq. And um, she, they, what they said about Zarqawi was that, um, which was also propaganda, was that um, he had been injured fighting alongside bin Laden and that Saddam Hussein, you know, his people nursed him back to health and gave him a peg leg and whatnot. Um, also not true, but um, that was, you know, even the hawkish, even, you know, the total neocons were not trying to paint uh, Zawahiri as, you know, having like taken refuge in Iraq ever. So she was just like, there, there's no, there's not even any neoconservative propagandist you could find who would say that. So she so either- she's almost so, like pulling it out of thin air. She's completely pulling it out of thin air. And what's, so what Scott said, which I thought was pretty funny, was that either, um, you know, because she's either lying or just has no idea what she's talking about. And and the only the only way, the only reason she would have to confuse the two is because their names both start with a Z, uh, which I thought was pretty funny. But it, it it would, I think it would explain, you know, if she's not lying, she is supremely unintelligent. And, you know, the things that she's supposed to be an expert on when she was working on the Middle East and the Bush administration, it's like we have these very unimpressive people in power who, you know, if if we want to be charitable to her and say she's not lying, um, then we should then we can say she doesn't understand the most rudimentary facts about something that she's supposed to be an expert in that she's literally sculpting policy on. Now, was there any other claims that you felt she made that um that that also deserved a lot of pushback? I know the stuff about Ada and um, Hussein, I, I guess, was debunked by the FBI and CIA. Right, right, and and and. The thing is, she she didn't address those claims, but you know, I made sure to reference in my article like why they were wrong, but I, I and who debunked them when, and I think those I, I think she was just afraid to address them at all. But but I should point out that you know she did have ample you time did to bring address those them. Up to those points. She just brought, didn't really brought, address them. Yeah, I brought all three of those points up, and and you know, I should point out in terms of you know you could say oh there were a lot of students in line maybe she had you know um um. You know, just other questions to get to and couldn't address all three points. Well, that's that would be an interesting theory, except for the fact that, you know, if you watch the video of me asking you the question, it runs about six minutes long, which sounds like a lot because it is. The question I ask her takes about one minute. Her response about the supposed connection between Al-Qaeda and Iraq is another minute. Wow, you still have four minutes left. Oh, that's because the other four minutes she just prattles about Donald Trump. In the election, which would be plenty of time to talk about, um, you know, the other claims that I pointed out, and, and at no point in what was interesting about it was I was just kind of dumbfounded. Like in my question, I didn't say I supported what Donald Trump said about the election. You know, um, I don't think we should just completely, you know, disparage people who have questions about the election. I think you know I've done my research. I, I don't. Um, I just don't think the margins are there to at all support, you know, the fact that um, the election should have been overturned. Um, you know, I, I think Trump lost, but, but I do think, you know, so, so she, but,
because the whole event, you know, the event that this was before the Q and A session, and uh, it was all about disinformation and January sixth, and then her work in the January sixth committee, and um, so what she realized was, I think, you know, to try to delve into her psyche, I think she gave some lip service, said, you know, oh, your characterization of the Iraq policy was wrong, even though it wasn't talking about policy. And she talked about some connection. And then she goes back to her strong suit, you know, and goes on for four minutes. And then by the end of it, people forget what I asked about. And what was so funny is like, if you if you were just in the room that I was in, you would think that like she completely destroyed me because she she just talks for about Trump and it's like, boom, boom, boom. But then you post it online and I know for a fact, I'm like, she just said a bunch of nonsense that doesn't have to do my question. And everyone on the internet picked up, picked it up. You know, everyone, you know, it was, it was cool. It got like um, over a hundred thousand views, which is I hadn't had something, you know, go that big before. So that was just, and I got a lot of support from like, you know, everyone from conservatives to libertarians to leftists and it was, and, you know, Iraq veterans and, you know, so just within this like weird echo chamber, you know, it's like, wow, Liz Cheney just ruined that college student. But then anyone who like is actually using their brain, you know, watches it and it's like, oh, she just dodged the question, said a lie, and then talked about Trump for four minutes. Did you get a response from, uh, I mean, when the video went viral, I, I'm assuming there was, there was responses from uh, both like people on the right, maybe a lot of um, anti-war libertarians, since I know that's the sort of tradition you come from in a lot of ways, but also it sounds mm -hmm. like there were probably leftists that agreed with you as well. I mean, myself yeah, yeah. included there, but uh, what, <laughs> what was the response like to the viral video? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, one thing that was funny was before, so uh, before, so right after the the event, you know, I hadn't even posted the video yet. I was actually heading with my friends just from the IOP to the library to get like a little war room going to, you know, start downloading videos and, and stuff like that. So I hadn't even posted it yet. And I had like multiple, you know, like actually leftist students tell me like, hey, you know, I'm on the left, but, you know, I, I'm not just like this um, robotic CNN watcher. And, and, you know, I can't believe that, you know, your question was great. I can't believe that the people in there were just kind of automatons clapping along because, you know, they're, they're told to. And so it was nice to get that support before I even posted it. But then yeah, I mean, I posted it and I had, you know, um, I would say for me, the the most impactful, I mean, obviously I had, you know, some some big names promoting it, but I, I think I care way more about, you know, um, just people in my comments who were like Iraq veterans who felt betrayed by this whole, um, you know, situation. And, and, and to me, it's like, a, you know, they're, they're, their testimony means the most because they were the ones putting their lives on the line. And, and, you know, we should in no way, you know, um, veterans, you know, deserve our respect and, 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 um, you know, they were, they were victims like, like the rest of us. And, and, um, so it was really cool to get support from them. It was cool to get, you know, support from, I would say, you know, I got a lot of support from, from, uh, you know, libertarians, like anti-war libertarians. And I also got a lot of support aside from like leftists and liberals. I got a lot of support from like kind of MAGA paleocon types. And, you know, I do what concerns me about the paleocons that I, I'm waiting and seeing is, is um, 
you know, I think like they're really becoming anti-war, but I'm, I'm just worried that it's not really, you know, out of principle because we've seen, I mean, you know, you told me you've read a lot of Rothbard's anti-war writings and, you know, he, he struggled a lot with, you know, continually trying to make alliances with different groups, you know, making alliances with the religious right, making alliances with the new left um, on, and, you know, these alliances, a lot of them failed because, um, you know, they, they weren't, you know, they lost their principle. And I just hope that kind of these paleocons were, were now, you know, they're the ones pushing the torch of anti-war within kind of Congress. Um, and in the why, media, why, I just hope that, say that, sorry. Just out of curiosity, why do you have, and I'm not asking this, like, I'm not asking this as like, oh, the leftist asking this, but why do you maybe have some skepticism about paleocons or sure. just maybe MAGA elements when it comes to being anti-war? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, like it is important to say that, you know, I don't think the MAGA people would call themselves like isolationists or just like like they or non-interventionist. They would say we want an America first foreign policy. So I, I do think their their foreign policy is different than mine. But I, I just I think that sometimes America first for them, you know, like if you look at what's happening with um ukraine you know um um there were a lot of people when when you know there are a lot of kind of america first paleocons who have been like me uh, you know against continuing u.s aid for ukraine but then you know there were reports like probably a week ago that that uh, a supposed russian missile hit the border to poland and there were actually some america first paleocons flipping out about it and um, because it's Poland, it's not Ukraine. And, and, you know, I, I thought to myself, like, I think with, you know, both war and with other issues, you know, um, there's a chance, you know, there's something, this doesn't pass the sniff test. Let's just like pump the brakes and let the facts come out. And then it turns out it was, you know, a Ukrainian air defense missile. And, um, you know, the, the AP was who I think released it and they, they fired one of the, you know, they basically went against protocols. Um, in terms of editorial standards to release that. And so I just think that um, we're also getting tested with China. Um, I do think it is nice to see there's a good amount of Pelicans who like aren't um, in support of, um, you know, going full throttle with respect to Taiwan. But I, I still think, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of, of testing. And, and is it like, are you really, are you really anti-war or are you just anti-war or maybe not anti-war, but America first, just because, um, the Democrats happen to be the war party right now. Do, do you think that's going to maybe come into play more uh, with, I, I noticed there's a lot of mobilization around Ron DeSantis, and I've already seen people like Scott Horton or uh, Daniel Larison say that, you know, if, if you look at DeSantis's record, um, he seems to be, you know, pretty open to interventionism when it comes to maybe uh, a lot of countries in Central America. Do you think that's also going to be a test for, this anti-war principle? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, with, so DeSantis is so interesting because I really, I just thought he was, you know, a real beacon, you know, with regard to COVID um, and just, uh, you know, this kind of island of sanity. But I think that, you know, with, I think the jury is out. There's all these differing opinions about him. I think, you know, Scott would be more on the side of like, he's, you know, going to be very conventional foreign policy wise. I think, um, you know, the one guy I'm, I'm friends with Daniel McCarthy of the intercollegiate studies Institute modern age, he, he 
released an article either, I think this morning or yesterday, you know, describing DeSantis as a realist. And he talked about how DeSantis, you know, very strongly opposed intervention in Syria that Obama was in favor of and, and wrote, I mean, actually like a really good statement opposing it. And so I think, I think the consensus is like, the, or there is not a consensus, but if I had to guess, I would agree, you know, more with say Daniel McCarthy's position on, on that issue than, than say Scott, even though, you know, I love Scott, I think um, realistically speaking, um, DeSantis, if he were president, you know, he's not going to be a libertarian on foreign policy. Nobody thinks that. But I think that there's a I think there's a better chance that he is, um, you know, going to be more of a Trump on foreign policy than a Bush, which is kind of the debate that people are having. And, you know, I don't like either foreign policy, but, you know, I'm definitely picking Trump's over over Bush's. So I think in terms of, you know, I would I say in absolute terms that DeSantis has a good foreign policy? No. But in in relative terms, I'm just not seeing how, you know, I, I could be wrong about this. I'm just a college kid, but I'm not seeing how DeSantis's foreign policy is going to be glaringly worse than Donald Trump's. And he's going to go straight into empire building and, and promoting democracy abroad. Out of curiosity, what do you think of um, the foreign policy situation right now? Um I, I think that I, I think that we can be critical of Biden, but then I I do think like I, I mean I've gotten in trouble with some people for saying this, but I agreed with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and I even know some people that call themselves leftists, not even like liberal, but leftists that were very mad at Biden for that, saying this was you know catastrophic. But I I think it yeah. needed to be done. Yeah, I well I agreed with the withdrawal too, which you know most of my friends like said the thinker don't. I will say that. You know, Biden did a horrible job of it um, in terms of, you know, leaving those weapons there. But I and I think there is just um, I'm I'm obviously, you know, I like I'm I'm against most of our military interventions. That said, I'm you know, I'm, I'm OK with, you know, when we do military interventions, you know, they there um, there should be some intelligent strategy behind it. And I think, um, you know, empowering the Taliban was was just stupid. I think what a lot of people were saying about the withdrawal, like on the right, that I just thought was foolish was, was, you know, because it's, because it's collapse was inevitable once we withdrew, you know, they were basically saying we, we should be there forever, just propping it up. And, you know, in my mind, if, if something is only standing up because you're artificially propping it up, then then maybe, you know, maybe the right solution is to to let it collapse and stop, you know, propping it up because um, we're just pouring we're we're just pouring money and and lives into, you know, something that that really has very diminishing return. I know that you know there's a common argument that that uh you know specifically the what we were doing with Kabul was not costing pretty much any lives of u.s troops and and yes that's true but um it wasn't a very bloody endeavor comparatively but it was certainly one that um was costing us a lot of money and i, I just i wasn't you know i say pull out because it, it um you know it doesn't make sense uh so that that's kind of my position on the afghanistan withdrawal do, do you think we're in a better position 
like I want to be careful how I word this, but do you think we're in a better position now than we were, say, in the the Bush years? Because I don't think we've. I mean, I guess people could argue that we're engaging in forms of proxy war right now, but we're not like starting a full on war like we did with Iraq. Do you think that says something about maybe the successes of the anti-war movement in a way? Hmm. I, yeah, I, I, mean, I hope I, that question makes sense or it's not. Yeah. No, it makes sense. Hmm. Actually, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I've ever thought about that. I mean, I think, you know, I think you might be right that it has to do with some of the success. I think there's a chance though, that, that, um, you know, maybe some of it has to do with economic fragility just because of, of, you know, like COVID and, and the lockdowns and the, the printing money where we're already, um, you know, politicians do bad things, but they're, they're often, you know, smart enough to not let things, you know, completely go zero to 60 with respect to just falling apart. And I think that, that, uh, you know, because, you know, when inflation got so bad and, and so many people, you know, lost their jobs and now they're getting it back and whatnot, I think it would just be hard to justify even just financially, like a full on war with Ukraine and people, you know, would not like the optics of it. And I think that people, even at this point, you know, your average American citizen does not like the optics of just, just um, even giving this foreign aid, which as, as you said, is not a, a full on invasion, but I think, I think there is war fatigue you know, though, too. Like, I, I, like in the sense of, I don't think people have completely forgotten Iraq yet. You know, I've talked to people like that's true. Uh, Kelly Vlahos at the Quincy Institute about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, I met her. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, veterans, I think, have soured on. You know, it, it brings to mind what you say in the article. You say those of us who are critical of decisions by our country to engage in wars are not merely leftists or right wing isolationists. We are citizens who believe that going to war should require provable facts. And I do think there is a lot more skepticism about should we get involved. At, yeah. in, in this specific way, like how far do we go with involvement? I do think yes. there is just a general sentiment among Americans uh, that, you know, we have a little bit of fatigue because of Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, there's, um, but see, at the same time, like that also means you have to be careful to not allow, you know, if there's fatigue, you know, politicians are going to work really hard to get rid of that fatigue. And, and, um, you know, so much of what happened with, say, the Gulf War was about, um, you know, kind of eliminating that Vietnam fatigue. Um, and this is something that was was actually like said, um, and as almost like a stated goal of just like because because yes, like the Gulf War was a very swift uh, victory, and and I I don't think it was one that that made sense either. But it was this kind of swift, decisive victory, and it's like. Bam, you know, the the Vietnam fatigue, which I actually think, you know, that kind of fatigue is a good thing. That fatigue was cured in, you know, in a bad sense of the word. And and um so I I I completely agree with you that there is this fatigue with um, you know, um this kind of intervention in the Middle East, but I just I think that kind of lends itself to politicians being even more opportunistic, if that makes sense, to try to get rid of that fatigue. Well, I want to thank you, Mitchell Robson, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with the work you're doing? Uh, mainly the Chicago thinker, right? I would say go to 
our website, thechicagothinker.com. Um, and there you can see all of our latest content. You can also, there's a box to subscribe to our newsletter, which is actually one of the things that I do. I periodically write a newsletter where I, you know, write a little blurb about something in politics. And, and I also post, I send our readers in their inboxes, all of their latest content. So definitely all of our latest content. Um, so definitely subscribe to that. Um, I would say follow us on, on uh, Twitter, um, which is at thinker Chicago. So um, thinker Chicago, I am one of the people running the social media. Um, and I would say, uh, follow if, if you want to check out any of like specifically stuff that I'm doing. My Twitter is uh, Contra, C-O-N-T-R-A, uh, Tyranny, T-Y-R-A-N-N-Y. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. Um, keep, you know, we'll have plenty of good content, um, coming out over break and, and, uh, you know, Mike Pence is coming to Chicago tomorrow and I'm going to be the press correspondent for that. So we're going to probably have some, um, exciting stuff to say for better or for worse about Mike Pence. Um, so, so, uh, definitely watch out for that. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Jordan Cohen and Mitch Robson. By the way, that conversation with Mitch Robson was recorded on 11-28-2022. In case you were wondering, due to his reference to a Mike Pence event that was coming up when we recorded the conversation. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerilax View to Parallax Jerilax View with Jerilax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.